A couple weeks after the first Thanksgiving, Bradford heard that a ship had appeared at Provincetown Harbor. This was just a couple of months after the Mayflower had departed, and they weren't expecting a supply ship, so they worried that it was the French. This is actually a very normal initial reaction to ships approaching, just not one that I've mentioned much because it's never particularly important. Regardless, it's an interesting aspect of colonial life in all the early colonies. Any given ship could be coming to help you, destroy you, or, well, neither in a huge percent of cases. This is one of those. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tungsalvala, the show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. So they fired their cannon and Standish assembled the men into a fighting force, but the ship landed and it turned out that it was an English vessel with 37 passengers and no supplies. This doubled the size of the colony. They weren't Leideners, though. Apart from Cushman, Brewster's son and Winslow's brother, they were predominantly young, single strangers. They were mostly poor artisans and workers, like carriage makers and ribbon weavers. And they were mostly men, though four female teenage orphans came. Before they were willing to land in Plymouth, though, they made this ship's captain promise to take them to Virginia if conditions in Plymouth were terrible. But when they landed, everything looked promising. The Pilgrims didn't like the new arrivals, though. They were always skeptical of strangers, and Bradford saw these colonists as being particularly wild. Worse, though, after counting their food supplies, they found that even eating half of their present rations, they'd only have six months of corn left, meaning another winter without enough food. The ship also brought a letter from Weston, addressed to the now-dead Carver. It criticized the Pilgrims for having failed to send back goods on the Mayflower, and it said that they hadn't failed because they were incapable. They had failed because they'd spent all their time bickering, talking, and voting rather than working. They didn't know what it took to survive in the wilderness, and the merchant adventurers were the ones paying the price. Literally. I know your weakness was the cause of it, Weston said, and I believe more weakness of judgment than weakness of hands. A quarter of the time that you spent in discoursing, arguing, and consulting could have done much more. Weston also emphasized that the pilgrims must pay back the merchant adventurers in goods before they tried to get rich themselves. Bradford was furious, and he replied acknowledging that the investors hadn't gotten any return on their investment, but that their potential losses were only financial, whereas the pilgrims had been dying, and the loss of industrious men like Carver couldn't be valued at any price. You can see both sides of the story, and though Cushman was one of the Leideners, he actually supported Weston. He'd been watching Weston's finances collapse in a way that Bradford didn't fully understand, and he'd also watched Weston try to remain a dependable backer despite his problems and promise he would never quit the business even if everyone else did. Cushman tried to convince Bradford to trust Weston and to sign the new agreement, but the event pushed a permanent wedge between Bradford and Cushman. 
The last thing the fortune brought was the new patent, secured from the Council for New England. Two weeks later, on December 13, 1621, the fortune left, carrying 500 pounds of beaver skins and sassafras obtained from the Indians, as well as oak clavards. It would be enough to cut their existing debt in half, which should convince the adventurers to continue investing. Cushman returned to England, but left his 14-year-old son Thomas in, Bla- in Bradford's care. The ship also carried the text that would later come to be known as Mort's Relation. On the way back to England, though, the fortune made a very common navigational error, which put it off the coast of La Rochelle in France instead of in England. At the time, the French king and the Huguenots were in the middle of a fight, which made the appearance of English vessels extremely suspicious. Every English vessel approaching the port was liable to search and seizure in case it was ferrying supplies to the Huguenot rebels, So when the fortune approached, a French warship stopped and boarded the ship. The governor seized the guns, cargo, and rigging and threw the ship's master in jail while Cushman and the crew remained under guard on board the vessel. Thirteen days later, he let the ship go with the copy of Mort's relation, but minus the valuable cargo. It was a common error and the fallout was just bad luck. Well, bad fortune. When they got to London, though, they realized just how damaging the event had been. You remember that the alum racket had blown up in Weston's face the previous summer. And, well, since that time, Weston had desperately continued his tactic of writing IOUs and trading, but he was past the point of no return. He had expected the pilgrim's friend Pickering to guarantee his debts, but his ties with the wealthy Brownist were weakening. Pickering felt that Weston was taking advantage of him by continuing to issue bills of exchange, which he expected Pickering to honor, and Weston, well, continued. His life was in a downward spiral, and he was using whatever tools he had to slow the decline. In early 1622, the two had a heated argument in London, and the relationship was over. Then a Shrewsbury draper named John Vaughn, sued Weston for payment for a consignment of Welsh cotton, and other individuals started to come after Weston for unpaid debt, and the authorities started to come after him for his unpaid fines and customs duties. So when the fortune came back with nothing, Weston sold his share in the Plymouth Venture for whatever someone would pay him, and he got one last patent. This one would allow him to sell guns in the Atlantic. However, right after he did this, the man who had run the alum monopoly reported Weston's more recent activities to the Crown, and the authorities came after him for that too, but he was gone. He had vanished, along with some of the people who worked for him. They found one of his crew members named Philemon Powell, who was posing as the purser of a ship, of eight colonists bound for New Plymouth in Massachusetts Bay. The authorities detained and interrogated Powell, but he refused to talk, saying that by law no servant could be made to give evidence against his master. This allowed Weston to evade arrest, and Weston actually surfaced and petitioned for Powell's release, saying that he was losing five pounds per day that Powell was detained. They let Powell go, 
the ship made its way to America, and Weston again disappeared. The remaining investors had to figure out what to do next. Some were close friends of Pickering and wanted to sue Weston. Shirley and Pocock started leading the merchant adventurers, though, and they paid to send 20 tons of supplies and 30 passengers to Plymouth. Then Cushman approached John Pierce, who had obtained the 1621 Council for New England patent, and Pierce agreed to help finance another voyage. Together, they raised 400 pounds. This was enough to buy 30 tons of supplies and trading goods, as well as a ship called the Paragon. Like the other investors, Pierce wasn't giving a donation. This was an investment, and because he'd given so much, Pierce wanted an insurance policy. He asked the Council for New England to amend the original patent in a way that made him and his business partners the landlords of the Plymouth Colony. Pocock and Shirley weren't happy about Pierce's patent adjustment, and neither were the settlers. And then the Paragon nearly sank twice, nearly ending the mission completely. And then, when Pierce didn't get the vessel repaired and sent out again within 14 days, Pocock and Shirley sued him. Among other things, the lawsuit included the patent adjustment, and the authorities held up the original patent, but the dispute continued until Pierce's death. Back in Plymouth, after the fortune left, rumors spread that the Narragansett Sachem Canonicus was preparing to attack the settlement. Toward the end of November, a Narragansett messenger arrived at Plymouth with a bundle of arrows wrapped in a rattlesnake's skin for Squanto. Squanto was away, so the messenger happily gave it to the pilgrims instead. When Squanto returned, he told the English that the arrows were nothing more than a challenge. Bradford filled the skin with gunpowder and bullets and sent it back to Canonicus, who was terrified. He refused to touch it, and it passed around from village to village until it finally made its way back to Plymouth. I don't know if Bradford knew the extent of the threat he was making, but the level of fear that it instilled was clear. For Standish, the event was evidence that the settlement needed a wall, specifically an 8-foot-high, 2,700-foot-long wall around the town. The settlers were on half rations, and the majority weren't pilgrims and had no real inclination to answer to pilgrim leadership and didn't particularly care about the idea of this wall anyway, the settlers didn't have the right tools for the job or the horses to move the wood, but Standish still managed to convince Bradford that it was a worthwhile project, and they started building. In a town with an ever-growing, non-Puritan, non-Brownist population, Christmas brought a predictable conflict. The strangers wanted to celebrate Christmas and told Bradford that it was against their consciences to work on Christmas, and Bradford wasn't pleased, but he gave them the day off while he and the others went out for the usual day's work. When they returned at noon, they found the strangers celebrating Christmas the way that it was celebrated in England, with sports and games. 
So Bradford confiscated the balls and bats and told them it wasn't fair for them to play while others worked and said that if they wanted to spend Christmas inside quietly praying at home, they could, but there would be no gaming or outdoor celebrations. This was not a free colony. It was a democratic colony. Anyway, the wall was coming along nicely and Standish developed a manpower plan. He then organized the colony's military. He divided the men into four companies, each with its own commander, and assigned positions and duties to each in the event of an attack. He drilled the men regularly and set up contingency plans in case he was away from the settlement during an attack. They needed to start trading for some food, though, so Standish prepared to take a group of people to trade with the Massachusetts. As they were planning the mission, though, Habamak appeared and told Bradford and Standish that the Massachusetts had aligned with the Narragansetts and were preparing to attack Standish's party. When Standish was dead, they planned to attack the settlement. Here's where it gets odd, though. Habamak said that Squanto was in on the plot and that he'd been secretly meeting with Indians throughout the region. The English needed food. They couldn't just huddle within the walls of the settlement. This was a very confusing turn of events, so they set up a meeting to decide what to do next. Bradford had developed a close relationship with Squanto, and he depended on his experience, judgment, and, quite frankly, companionship. Meanwhile, Standish and Habamock had become close friends. The two Indians were rivals, and it was quite possible that Habamak was misrepresenting Squanto's actions. So Bradford and Standish decided to talk to them individually, compare notes, and play up the competition between them to try to figure out what was going on. So they replanned the mission, and Standish took ten men, as well as both Squanto and Habamak, to the shallop toward Massachusetts. A few hours after they left... One of Squanto's family members appeared outside the town completely exhausted and with his head and face covered in blood. Between gasps for breath, he told Bradford that he'd just come from Namaskit and that the Narragansetts had teamed up with the Poconogets for an assault on Plymouth. He said he, as a member of Squanto's family, had spoken in the Pilgrim's defense and had, as a consequence, been struck on the head. The story just didn't quite make sense, and at the very least, there were some aspects of the story that looked suspicious. Massasoit suddenly turning against the English was odd, if not for reasons of loyalty, then for strategic reasons. Plus, there were some odd parallels between his story and the story of Habamak's escape from Corbitant. Plus, the message was timed for the moment at which the English were at their most vulnerable, and it looked staged, even calculated. Bradford ordered the cannons to be fired as a warning signal, and hopefully to get Standish to return to Plymouth. At the very least, though, everyone working in the countryside could return to the town. Fortunately, Standish did hear and immediately turned around. Habamak insisted that Squanto's relatives' claims were all lies, Massasoit would have consulted him if he were planning anything. He was one of the Sachin's most trusted confidants, unlike Squanto. 
They sent his wife to Poconoket to determine whether there was any truth to Squanto's relatives' claims, and she didn't find anything amiss, so she told Massasoit why she was there. Massasoit was furious. He assured Bradford that he would warn him of any possible threats to Plymouth if they arose. They did have a treaty, after all. Further investigation into the issue showed that Squanto had been working to overthrow Massasoit. He'd been telling villages throughout the region the same lie that he'd once told Massasoit, that the English possessed the plague and that they could unleash it at will. Furthermore, he said that the English were planning to do just that, but that if a village sent him tribute, he could convince them to hold off. People were beginning to look to Squanto instead of Massasoit for protection. If he could get the English to attack Massasoit, he could take complete power of the region, so it was all a setup. But this was just the beginning of the problem, because under the terms of the treaty, Bradford had to turn Squanto over to Massasoit for punishment. But Bradford didn't want to. He considered Squanto a close friend and someone who he and the pilgrims depended on as an interpreter and a guide. Forget the fact that he'd just endangered both the English and Massasoit, as well as peace in the region, and that he'd tried to get them to kill their greatest ally. Forget the fact that if this were England, Squanto's crimes would be punishable by hanging, drawing, and quartering, and that they were really were terrible and that after these actions, there's no way that the pilgrims should have trusted anything Squanto said or did. Turning Squanto over to be killed wasn't something Bradford wanted to do, and evidently he was willing to break his treaty with Massasoit to avoid it. To an extent, I can sympathize with this. Squanto was somebody he'd known for over a year, whose company he'd enjoyed, and who had taught the pilgrims to plant corn. Plus, well, the pilgrims did tend to look very strongly to their leaders and advisors for guidance, even in Leiden, and in fact, even in England. And now he was in the position of having to turn Squanto over, not just for trial, but for execution. You can see how he wouldn't want to make that call. This is one of the many downsides of Bradford and the Pilgrims being ordinary farmer types instead of trained soldiers or experienced explorers. It's one of those tough aspects of diplomacy and colonization, but it was a very important thing for Bradford to do, and he simply couldn't. He kept Squanto in his original position, even when Massasoit appeared in Plymouth and demanded that he be killed. And even when Massasoit returned to Poconoket and sent a messenger reiterating his demands, Bradford had made his choice, and though he acknowledged that Squanto deserved to die, he said that Squanto was vital to the health of the plantation and that he couldn't be executed. And he reiterated that position when Massasoit's messenger returned with several warriors, their sachem's knife, and instructions to return with Squanto's head and hands. Massasoit even offered to give Bradford furs just for adhering to the treaty and turning someone over who had endangered both of them in his own quest for power. Bradford refused the payment, but he did bring Squanto to talk to the emissaries from Poconoket. 
Squanto insisted that none of it was his fault, that Habemach was the one who had orchestrated the whole thing. It was utterly impossible that this story was true. Then a boat appeared in the distance, and Bradford told the Poconokets that he wouldn't surrender Squanto until he could determine the nationality of the boat, because if the boat was French, they might be on the verge of an attack. Massasoit's men left again, furious at the new delay tactic, and went to tell their leader. Squanto remained alive, though. And as for the boat, it was a shallop from an English fishing vessel called the Sparrow, which had been hired by Weston. It carried 50 to 60 passengers, again without supplies, but with a rather rushed and rambling letter to Bradford, listing his excuses, his enemies, pledges of help, and an admission that the latest reinforcements weren't exactly England's finest. Now, he said, I will not deny that there are many of our men rude fellows, as these people term them, yet I presume that they will be governed by such as I set over them, and I hope not only to be able to reclaim them from the profaneness that may scandalize the voyage, but by degrees to call them to God. Bradford was furious. He offered the men the requested hospitality, lowered rations even more, and hid the letter from everyone but his most trusted associates. Spring brought an influx of fresh fish into the streams, but the Plymouth settlers had no idea of how to fish. They couldn't even catch enough to feed themselves, much less themselves and the new arrivals. The new arrivals then ruined the corn crop by eating the immature corn stalks which had been planted. A few weeks later, even more settlers appeared on the Swan and the Charity. One of these was a lawyer named Thomas Morton. Soon, though, Weston's men left Plymouth and founded their own village, which they'd gotten a patent for at a place called Wessagusset. The Plymouth fort was just about completed, and the new settlers began building their own fort about 20 miles away. The corn crop had been disastrously insufficient, but Winslow took the shallop to Maine to get some food, and then, in November, Plymouth and Wessagusset teamed up to take Wessagusset's 30-ton swan on a trading voyage south of Cape Cod, led by Standish. Right before the ship was supposed to set sail, though, Standish got sick enough that he couldn't go, so Bradford went with Squanto instead. They traded with a local tribe, but as they were preparing to leave the area, Squanto suddenly fell ill, started bleeding from the nose, and was soon dead. It seems likely that he was poisoned, especially because poison was a form of assassination used by New England tribes. And Winslow seemed to think that Squanto and Massasoit had made peace with each other, but it's hard to imagine that that was the case. Bradford did claim, though, that as Squanto was dying, he asked him to pray for him, that he might go to the Englishman's God in heaven, and that he then bequeathed his things to his English friends as remembrances of his love. But Squanto was dead, and the relationship with Massasoit was damaged, so it was a lose-lose situation for Bradford and Plymouth. When Standish recovered, he and Bradford went on another trading expedition, this time to the west. 
and with the coldness and reservation of the people there, they started to realize just how much they and Weston's men had antagonized the natives. This was a year after the first Thanksgiving, and things couldn't be more different. Relations with Massasoit were strained, and rumors were that the Massachusetts were preparing to attack. Plenty had been replaced by poverty, and instead of a godly haven in the wilderness, the pilgrims were surrounded by the kinds of people that they'd left England and then Leiden to get away from. They also worried that those people's behavior would degrade relations with the natives even more. And it was about this time that they got some truly alarming news from Virginia. Thanks for listening. If you have any opinions, thoughts, or theories about anything we've discussed in the show, I'd love to hear from you either on Facebook or Twitter. And you can find those links at the website, AmericanHistoryPodcast.net, as well as links to firsthand accounts and things. See you next week.